Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's interview is with Lauren Gaughan. In this episode, Lauren and I discuss her take on applying for funding to do fieldwork in what Lauren quite aptly describes as this really uncomfortably competitive grant funding world. Lauren has experience as both a successful applicant for fieldwork and research funding and also on the other side of the process as an assessor on various grant committees. Before playing the interview, I wanted to mention that on Twitter, we asked researchers how they fund their work, and I curated those responses in this episode's blog post, which you can find at fieldnotespod.com. And if you have any resources to add or any comments about this topic, you can tweet at us at lingfieldnotes.com, or you can comment on the blog, which is at fieldnotespod.com. Okay, so today I would like to welcome Lauren Gaughan onto the podcast. Thank you for coming, Lauren. That's okay. It's lovely to be here. To start, I'd like to read a short bio. Lauren Gaughan is a linguist focusing on evidentiality and gesture with specialization in Tibeto-Burman languages. She completed her PhD at the University of Melbourne and has held postdoc positions at NTU Singapore and SOAS University of London and is currently a David Myers Research Fellow at La Trobe University. She co-hosts the podcast Lingthusiasm with Gretchen McCulloch and runs the generalist linguistics website Superlingo. So that's Lauren. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So to start, how did you get into what you do now? So how did you start working with Tibeto-Burman languages? I, like many people, stumbled into linguistics as an undergraduate. I had an extra subject to fill out my timetable for the first semester of my undergraduate degree. And by the end of the degree, I was majoring in it and just found something I really enjoyed doing. And I did what's known as an honours year in Australia, so a fourth year researching gesture with English speakers, and then took some time off and wasn't sure what I wanted to do and had coffee with my supervisor, Barb Kelly, who I blame for a lot of this in the best possible way. And uh, she was starting a large research project with some colleagues and was looking for a PhD student to work on a Tibeto-Burman language because they have really interesting features around grammatical structures known as evidentiality. And uh, as soon as she kind of said that they had this project going, I was like, that is that is what I want to do. It turns out that it's probably not the best idea to start a fieldwork project and also start learning, you know, a major contact language as well. But during the PhD, I learned to speak Nepali and ended up working on the Yolmo language, which is a Tibeto-Burman language in Nepal. Can you tell us briefly about your fieldwork in Nepal? Sure. So for the PhD from 2009 to 2013, I worked with a variety of Yolmo uh, that's spoken in a district called Lamjung. Mm-hmm. So the majority of Yolmo speakers live kind of in a district in, in the Halambu Valley area, which is just north of Kathmandu, which is the capital. And I ended up working with a group who had migrated away from there a couple of centuries ago, so a slightly divergent dialect. And I still 
um, really close to quite a few people who I spent time with and I still occasionally do a bit of recording with them, but mostly also just a lot of catching up with people and all these tiny babies who were tiny babies when I started and now, now such big children. I started working in Lamjung kind of by accident. I didn't think I was going to work on Yolmo. I thought I would like to work on a language called, well, at the time it was called Kagate, now it's more known as Shuba. And so I wrote to a linguist who'd worked with the Shuba community in the 1970s and said, you know, I was going to Nepal and if they still knew anyone, um, I'd really like to connect with them. And I didn't hear back from her for a long time and in the process ended up working with the Yolmo people. Um, but she eventually got back to me and when I was there, I in Nepal, I've started making contact with the Shuba speakers. And after my PhD, they were really keen to have a linguist come and work with them to record. And so most of my postdoctoral work has been based on working with that community. Oh, right. Okay. And turning to the main topic of how to fund fieldwork, I know that you've been quite successful in being able to fund your work. Can you talk a bit about how you've managed to fund your fieldwork and what grants you've received so far? Sure. I think it's worth saying at the top, though, that, you know, in an, in an ideal world, if I ran the world, we wouldn't have to make really often upsetting decisions about what research we're going to fund. It's really upsetting when you read, like I read so many grant proposals, either as drafts for friends or as assessor on various grant committees. And uh, it just strikes me how much amazing work is being done that we struggle to fund. It amazes me how kind of imperative a lot of this work is. And in an ideal world, I would love to see it all funded. But unfortunately, we live in this really uncomfortably competitive grant funding world. And I think if you look at, you know, kind of when I started my PhD, there was still this turn of the millennium or the end of this phase of around the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s, there was this real explosion in language documentation work and in funding for that work. So you had things like the Volkswagen Foundation were funding endangered language documentation work. The Endangered Languages Documentation Program is still going, but that had a really big and exciting mandate at the time. And so there were all these funds around for documentation and it seemed to be a burgeoning industry and if you look at it now it's a really tight and competitive space and there are also just so many more people doing amazing work in this space as well so kind of with the caveat that in an ideal world i'd love to see so much more work funded and i wish there were more opportunities in my personal experience Funding has come through, I think kind of, you can categorize it into larger groups. So one type of funding I've had has been institutional grants. So a research institution may advertise for postdocs or PhDs. A lot of PhD students are funded this way, where you propose a project, your salary is included for one to four years. I've heard of five-year postdocs, but frankly, they sound like a dream. So you have your funding covered and some of the project covered. And that was my postdoc in Singapore was funded that way through Nanyang Technological University's own funding. And my Latrobe position at the moment, the David Myers Research Fellowships were set up by Latrobe and funded by Latrobe. There are also um, possibilities for institutional grants that are minor just to cover specific projects. And whatever university you're at, it always really pays to look through what funding opportunities there are. So I teamed up with some colleagues 
at NTU to set up a project with the art department to make picture books. So we got some extra money to help fund my field work that way. At La Trobe, I have funding from La Trobe Asia to run an experiment at the moment, a perception experiment that we're doing both in Nepal and in Australia. And at Melbourne University, I made a lot of use of the travel scholarships that were available for PhD students. So they're the institutional grants that I've had. I've also had grants through granting bodies, so the Endangered Languages Documentation Program, or ELDP, funded my postdoc at SOAS. So it wasn't SOAS paying my salary. They were just administering the project, and it was ELDP funding it. So that was a major kind of grant. And I've had smaller grants from funding bodies, including from an organization called Firebird, which is interested in oral literature. For most of these, I'll put the links in the show notes for you. Firebird don't pay a salary, but they will pay fieldwork costs. And so I use that to fund a season of fieldwork in Nepal to really start the work with the Shuba community that I've gone on to do through ELDP and La Trobe subsequently. Um, so sometimes these smaller grants can just help fund that extra season of work that you really want to do. I also have um, <laughs> a, a kind of small set of like slightly quirky grants. So I think one of the important things is to always think really laterally and kind of think about opportunities and how you can use them. So during my time working with Shuba speakers, the organization Stack Exchange that do those like question websites had a bunch of thousand dollar grants for small projects. And I applied for one and requested a audio recorder and a computer so that people in Nepal could do some of the documentation work themselves. And similarly, I got some funding from the Awesome Foundation in the Ottawa chapter to get some materials and support for people who wanted to do documentation in Nepal as well. So these kind of small, you know, it's only $800 or $1,000 just to get some extra resources. One of the other things that's good about applying for these small grants is that there's this really unfortunate thing where Funding bodies like to throw money after money. And so if you have demonstrated that you can get smaller grants, you're more likely to be given larger grants. It's kind of paradoxical, ideally. You know, people who don't have access to funding through one channel will get funded through another. But what often happens is that one person will get multiple grants because funding bodies want to back winners is the kind of uncomfortable reality of that. I also have some experience with crowdfunding. So in my podcast that I do with Gretchen McCulloch, Lingthusiasm, uh, we use a crowdfunding model for that. And that's obviously a very different type of project to a language documentation project. But I think there is a potential opportunity to ask people to support the kind of work that we do. I think it's still imperative that kind of governmental and philanthropic organizations step up and support this work. But people are generally interested in the kind of linguistic diversity of the world. And it's a great opportunity to invite them into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned getting funding for resources for the community to do their own documentation. So often, it's easy to forget that that actually opens up a, an avenue for a lot more work to be done if you can just get some money for an extra recorder or an extra laptop computer. More work to be done, but there is also this additional uncomfortable reality that a lot of language documentation is still done by outsiders coming into communities. Yeah, definitely. And that it has a kind of extractive vibe. And I think that definitely 
hits home a lot when it comes to grants that cover salary. And I've had some, because ELDP disclose on their website, and fair enough, how much they fund projects, I've had some uncomfortable conversations with people about the fact that my salary is being covered to do this work. And my salary, which, you know, in London didn't really leave me with a very glamorous lifestyle, is a very serious amount of money for someone in Nepal. And there's a there's an entire conversation to be had about decolonizing language documentation. And I think there are things we can all do to drive that agenda more. But one of the really frustrating things with a lot of these grants is that they often don't leave scope for things like that. So there's not often a lot of opportunity or resources to train language documentation skills in in with the people that you're working with um, unless you go above and beyond and do that yourself and there's almost never resources for helping people publish materials in their language or use the materials that you've created to do additional work and that's something that's really frustrating about a lot of these grants and why some of those smaller grants allow a bit more latitude in that regard Mm -hmm. yeah what about can you talk a bit about any grants that you you applied for maybe you reapplied for and they they weren't successful yeah I'm, that's a really good question the ELDP project that I had was the second time that I had submitted that and in fact a couple of years earlier we'd written a small grant proposal that had been rejected so it was really the third time that we'd submitted that project that I had finally got proof of the community's interest proof of my skills and commitment and relevant interests and also just finally won that reviewer lottery really and I also have a long list like anyone else of things that I've applied for and been rejected for and that includes kind of tenure track and temporary jobs in the US and Australia and in the UK government funded grants in the UK I've also been pretty open over the last six months about being rejected for the Australian government's Early Career Researcher Awards. So that is a granting body that funds basically all social sciences and humanities research in Australia. Um, They only offer 200 postdoctoral fellowships a year, which sounds like a lot, but you're competing against, you know, often 2,000 people. That's not a really great acceptance rate. And that's kind of been my last opportunity to continue working as a research fellow in Australia unless I can find some other alternative source of employment or or grant. So yeah, I think, you know, I've I've been pretty realistic about the fact that it's not anything to do with me or the quality of my work or my commitment to the communities that I work with. It's just that we're in a very overly competitive and under resourced environment at the moment. Yeah, I feel like it's so easy to get caught up in what others are doing and uh, other researchers' outward success with grants and jobs. But like you said, there, you know, everyone gets rejected and there is such an element of right place, right time involved. Yeah. And that's kind of a good way to look at it is that maybe, maybe there are good reasons why this year wasn't your year. And definitely either use the feedback that you're given from those rejections or ask for feedback if you're not given it to put towards future applications. What would you say to someone who has a project in mind or has a community in mind that they want to work with and they're looking for funding to do field work? What what are your main uh, tips on how to find grants to apply for? I think a lot of that comes from 
asking people and just having conversations and asking how they're funded, kind of what what is available in the areas that you work in. I kind of operate under a, you know, obviously we're all in the same pool for the same funding, but I try and operate under a theory of, you know, we're not really competitors. We're all just operating within the same overly constricted environment. So I try and be open with people about what resources are out there and what I've used. Looking online, so there are some databases for grants. There are some research funding kind of aggregates. Things like linguist lists for linguists will post when particular grants are available. One convenient uh, source of looking for funding options is to look at acknowledgement of grants in research research articles. So whenever you read an article for your research, just kind of peruse that acknowledgement section and see how those people have been funded. Mm -hmm. That's a really good tip. What are your suggestions for how to build a really strong application for funding for fieldwork? In terms of putting together the strongest application that you can, a lot of this is just really unglamorous advice. Like I think some people just hope that there's some magic bullet that if they do X, Y, and Z, that will be the winning combination. And you see these little like mini fads in grant applications where like, you know, for a few years, everyone will be like, the way I'll be most competitive is to promise to make a dictionary or to make a particular resource or to start a website. But I think the tightrope that you walk here is balancing what actually reflects the work that you want to do and how that fits with what the grant body expects. And one of the first and most important things is just to read the instructions. This advice definitely comes from my proofreading and my reviewing experience as much as my own grant writing experience. But read any supporting documentation that they have, read the questions and think really hard about what they're asking from a reviewer's perspective, um, and then have people proofread your application because they'll see things and inconsistencies or incoherent parts better than you can in your own work. I've developed a really great little circle of colleagues and friends now who, you know, I'll read their grants and they'll read mine and, you know, someone who doesn't work in your particular area will notice things that you've assumed as knowledge in a grant application. From then on, I think it's important to tell a coherent story So if you promise to do a dictionary in one point, actually make it clear how that's going to happen in the timeline. And that's partly coherence. It's also partly feasibility. I think we all suffer from this idea of expectation inflation. So um, if you look at kind of earlier applications for a grant scheme, as time goes on, those expectations of what you should be able to do in two years get bigger and bigger and you feel the need to kind of over inflate what you think you're going to do and the problem with this is you need to be competitive but you also need to be realistic about what can be done especially when a large time of field work is involved yeah yeah definitely turning back to more general field work experiences can you tell us if you've had any data loss horror stories and what that was like you you know that I do, and it's it's such a terrible story that I will now share it with everyone else because it's part of my ongoing like this ongoing cautionary tale, which happened before I was a linguist, but I well it happened before I was a field worker, but I think it speaks a lot to 
why I'm so interested in linguistic data management now, because it was the, it was like the year after I'd finished honors and, uh, I had all of my research, like my honors thesis, all of the primary data for the thesis on a laptop. And someone broke into my house and stole my laptop and a bunch of other stuff. It was very, it was very upsetting at the time. And, you know, I was still kind of recovering from being a broke student and couldn't really afford to buy a computer and had all my data on that computer. So that was really upsetting. But thankfully, I'm really good at making backups. And so I had, I had a thumb drive that had all of my documents backed up on it in my handbag. And so it was great because my handbag wasn't at home. The, person who went through our house didn't steal my handbag or my data, so I had it all there, except I went out that Friday night after the very traumatic week of having my house broken into, and while I was at a bar, someone stole my handbag, so I lost the second backup, well, the backup that I had of my work. But thankfully, I'd created an additional backup on an old thumb drive I didn't really use that much anymore, and I'd put it behind all the books on my bookshelf. So I was like, well, that's fine. I'll pull that out and I'll make a backup of that now because I'm down to my second backup and need to make another copy. Except that thumb drive had corrupted because it was so old. And by this point, you know, I'd had two backups in the primary and they were in different locations. I was like, I've done, I've done as good as I can do. I guess all of my undergraduate work, all of my like high school essays, like, I guess that can all be lost. There, there's no great loss to humanity if that data's gone. But I was a bit upset about the honours work because I'd hoped to do something with it. And then um, about six months later, I was at my parents' house moving a box of books that, like everyone, you kind of hope your parents will just hold on to for you. And in the box of books, I found a DVD, which was a copy of my entire hard drive. So at some point, I'd made third backup and left it in an off-site location and thanks to that, I managed to retrieve my honours data and it eventually became a publication. And I feel like that encapsulates why I'm so observant of good data management and backup practices. Yeah, no, that's such a good story just to to really demonstrate how important it is to make so many backups and put them all in different locations for when the worst strikes. And check on them. It's not, the problem is not having multiple backups. The problem is making sure you can actually access them. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Can you talk a bit about what major equipment you use when you're on field work, just like video and audio recorders? Sure. I, um, if you would like to know more about this, it's all listed on the data archive for the Schuber corpus, but it's also in, I wrote a corpus explainer paper for language documentation and conservation. Okay, I'll link that. Um, so when you when I saw this question, I just went straight to that article and copied pasted it. Uh, so I use a Zoom H4n for audio. It's what I'm using right now. It's what I do all my podcasting with. This is a really unpopular opinion, but I I just don't have a lot of feelings about microphones. Um, I know a lot of linguists get really into them, but I kind of just if I'm in the field, I'll kind of take whatever microphones are available through my departments infrastructure and if it's like if it's a good mic it's a good mic so i've used i've used sennheiser omnidirectional lav mics which are really beautiful for cutting out a lot of peripheral noise um, i've used an audio technica at8022 which is a nice little cartoid microphone but really 
I don't have any strong feelings about those. Once you get up to a good enough quality, they all seem to be good enough as far as I'm concerned. And then for video, because a lot of the work I do is video recording as well, because I'm interested in gesture and the kind of whole communicative experience, I use a Panasonic HCV720, which is like amazingly portable. Video cameras these days are just so great. It's so portable. It's so light. It shoots absolutely beautifully. I've had documentary filmmakers turn that footage into beautiful short films and it looks amazing. It really has good color balance. I've never had to do too much brain work. Uh, it just seems to work for me. So I really love that camera. And I use a Rode Pro shotgun mic on top of it just to give myself an additional higher quality audio backup because I'm all about those backups and redundancies. Great. And lastly, what advice would you give to someone who's about to go into the field for the first time? When I was going to go into the field for the first time, you gave me such insightful advice. What What would you say to someone who's just starting out? I think I think my answer to that question is kind of colored by the fact that I recently had a baby. And so I feel like my advice to someone going into the field now is the advice that a lot of people gave me about kids, which is just to to make the most of the experience. Like it's such a five months in the field or a year in the field or five weeks in the field might seem like a really long time. And sometimes it, it really is when you're stuck in the middle of it. But it's also really fleeting and magical and beautiful as you start to build these what are hopefully ongoing and meaningful relationships. And so just kind of taking the chance to to look around you and appreciate where you are and how privileged you are to be able to be doing this. And with that, you know, just take 20 times more photos than you think you need to take. And I've always had a personal journal that I've kept alongside kind of all the general journal taking and note taking that I do when I'm in the field, because I think it's just an opportunity to reflect on what you're doing and the experiences that you're having. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Lauren, so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Where can our listeners learn more about your work and more about what you're doing? My website is laurengorn.com. I have all of my academic research links to the archives that of the language documentation projects that I've done. There's also my blog, Superlingo, where I write about my research sometimes um, and other cool linguistic stuff and my podcast, Lingthusiasm, in which Gretchen and I are enthusiastic about all of linguistics. Great. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me on, Marty. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.